Hey, good morning, church. Uh, God bless you all. I hope that you're ready and excited to dive into God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4, that's our text today. We're now in part 4 of our series, The Providence and Sovereignty of the Unseen King. So last week's text, chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, uh, in all of chapter 3, the focus was on Mordecai and Haman. So let's do a quick review here. Mordecai was sitting, remember this, at the king's gate, and it was a position of honor and authority, and it was a place where important official business was transacted, and most likely it was his cousin Queen Esther who used her influence to get him this job. So while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, he hears Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, plotting to assassinate the king. So Mordecai told Queen Esther, and she in turn told the king, uh, giving credit to uh, Mordecai. Well, after the report was investigated and found to be true, Bigthana and Teresh were uh, hanged on the gallows, and all of this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Now, though Mordecai uh, uh, saved the king's life, he was not rewarded for it, but we know that eventually he will. It's all uh, in God's timing. God is working, working, God is working behind the scenes. And as we enter into uh, the third chapter, we see, as the text says, that King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, uh, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Notice it says he, uh, speaking of Haman, uh, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Remember that word, Agagite? That's a key word there. It's a key. This is key to the whole story. It's the origin of Haman's hatred for Mordecai and all the Jews. And I don't have time to get right into it, uh, but if you uh, listen to last week's message, you know exactly why Haman hated the Jews. Verses 2 and 4, uh, 2 all the way through 4 of chapter 3 says, All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor, uh, pay him, excuse me, honor. So the reason why Mordecai uh, wouldn't bow before Haman is because no self-respecting Benjamite would bow before a descendant of the ancient Amalekite enemy of the Jews. Remember that? Verse 3, Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for. Listen to what it says. For he had told them, Mordecai told them, he was what? A Jew. A Jew. So Haman was angry that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. Uh, and the fact that he found out that Mordecai was a Jew made it worse. So Haman not only wanted to destroy Mordecai, but also all of the Jews. So lots were cast. Remember that? Lots were cast to determine the day and month that they would massacre the Jews. Now, they wouldn't be attacked and, and massacred for at least 11 months. So the long delay between the first month and the month of the massacre against the Jews, get this now, was ordained by God. Say that, ordained by God. And you see, it would give Esther and Mordecai uh, time to act. And so we know that God is working, say that God is working behind the scenes. Then Haman uh, bribes the king, and then the king hands his signet ring 
over to Haman so that Haman can stamp that signet ring on documents that will authorize genocide for the Jews. Now let's look at verse 13 of the third chapter. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So this now brings us to today's text. The title of my message today is For Such a Time as This. Say that, For Such a Time as This. I got two points for you from the text. Uh, If you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Number one is this. Mordecai's request. Write that down. Say that. Mordecai's request. Two subpoints under point number one. First subpoint, write it down, is his anguish. Mordecai's anguish. His anguish. And we're going to look at verse one in the text here. It says, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. Listen, sackcloth with ashes was a sign of extreme mourning. In fact, in Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 15, Ezra 9, 1 through 15, when Ezra was informed of the sin of the people, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and just sat there in a daze all day long. All day long, which is a sign of extreme sorrow, and mourning. So when Mordecai heard about this genocidal decree, he he tore his clothes, he dressed in rags, put ashes on his head, and he mourned openly and also publicly. And he was showing great grief, and he was neither afraid. Listen now, he was neither afraid nor ashamed to let people know where he stood. Now I want you to follow me here, okay? We know that that uh, Mordecai had already. Uh, revealed to the officers at the gate that he was a Jew. We know that, right? And now he's telling the whole city that he was not only a Jew, but also that he opposed this horrendous act, uh, the massacre, the mass murder of the entire Jewish population. Now, was this just a simple payback by Haman? No, it's, it's, it's much bigger than that. And you see Satan, Satan is involved in this. And he's involved in efforts to obliterate the Jewish people and this to bring to a halt God's purpose uh, of redemption on their behalf. Look at verse 2, verse 2. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Now listen, you were not allowed to show signs or any signs of mourning around the palace. And the palace was to be a happy place, a happy place, no sign of sorrow there by the palace. And so Mordecai left his usual position uh, there by the, the palace gate, went out into the middle of the city and began to wail. He began to cry. Now, now Mordecai took a risk here because he went as far as the king's gate. He, he, he was mourning outside the king's gate. So he took a risk. That was a no-no. And perhaps he was hoping that someone from the palace would take notice of him and get the message, get this now, get the message to Queen Esther. And we'll see that in verse 4. We'll see in verse 4 that his risk pays off. Look at verse 3. In every province to which the edict had 
edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This religious purpose of this mourning ritual was to implore God to intercede on behalf of the Jews. Now, it's interesting how suffering, how suffering can really bring people together and bring them to a place of seeking God more fervently. Isn't that true? That's so true. Now, now perhaps you're thinking, if the Jews knew that this massacre would happen for 11 months, why didn't they just get up and leave? Well, the truth is, friends, they really had no other place to go. It wasn't even safe to go back to Israel because Israel was under the rule of Xerxes. And you see, Persia ruled from India to Ethiopia, so there were very few places to which they uh, could flee. Verse 4, if you're still with me, say amen. Verse 4, when Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth. This is what it says. But he would not accept them. But he would not accept them. Now, obviously, she, speaking of Esther, knows nothing of this edict to destroy the Jews. She is totally clueless. Why? Because she's, she's totally separated from what's happening outside the palace. So she knows nothing of what's going to happen uh, with the Jews. Now, the fact that Mordecai refused the clothes that she sent him tells her that something serious is happening here. And this gave Mordecai, I love this, Mordecai, the opportunity, listen now, to get his message to the queen. So we see his, Mordecai's anguish. The second subpoint is his advice. Mordecai's advice, his advice. Write that down. Mordecai or his advice. Write that down. Look at verses 5 through 8 with me. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs. By the way, say Hathak. Remember that name, okay? Remember that name. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Verse 6. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 8. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him, he told Hathak, to urge her, to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Now listen, Mordecai not only had all the facts about that decree, about that edict, but he also had a copy of it for Esther to read. And you see, he, speaking of, of Mordecai, he did much more than inform her He's urging her, listen now, he's urging her, he's, he's charging her to reveal her true nationality and to go into the presence of the king, to the royal throne, into the royal throne, and intercede for her people. 
fact, what, what he's saying is this, Esther, you, you, just, you have to go to the king. You have to go to the king, Esther, and plead for the lives of your people. Simple enough? Mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's not so simple because let's look at verses 9 through 11. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Verse 10. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, verse 11, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he or she be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his or her life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now you see in Persia, no one, including the queen, including the queen, could go before the king without a personal invitation. Anybody who, listen now, ventured to go into the presence of the king without being invited could be killed on the spot. So, so Esther, listen now, would not only be breaking royal protocol, but she would be risking her own life. Now notice the text says basically that the king hadn't seen, even seen her, Esther, in 30 days. I mean, she hadn't been in the presence of the king for now 30 days. And I got to tell you, friends, she, she was afraid, I believe this, she was afraid of potentially violating her irrational husband who had demoted Vashti for one act of noncompliance. Now, now Mordecai, Mordecai, was putting Esther in a position where she could lose her life. And she's simply saying to Mordecai, Mordecai, you don't understand what you're asking me to do. Now, now we need to understand that she's not saying, no, I won't do it. It's not an evasion, an, an evasion but an explanation. And she's just saying, Mordecai, before you ask me to do that, you've got to understand what the risk is. Mordecai, if, if, I, if I go there in the presence of the king, and he doesn't want to see me, I'll be put to death. Even as the queen, I'll be put to death. So think about what you're asking me to do, Mordecai. Now again, she wasn't saying no. She was just doing what any, listen now, any reasonable person would do. She was, now i got to get this, she was counting the personal cost. I'm going to say that again. She was counting the personal cost. I mean, that's always true anytime we, that we are called to get involved in something, right? Anytime there's a great cause put before us, anytime the challenge is great, we should always, always count the personal cost. Before we, we move forward, before we take the first step, we better, listen now, sit down and count the personal cost, right? Isn't that what God's word tells us to do? Yup. Follow me. Jesus said in in Luke 14, in Luke 14, nobody goes to war without counting the soldiers to make sure he's got enough. Nobody sits down to build a building without making sure he has enough money to finish the job. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus said, you must take up your cross and follow me. So it's going to cost you something, friends. It's going to cost you something. You, you got to count the personal cost. And so Esther is simply saying, Mordecai, I want to help you. I really want to help you, but you've got to understand something. I'm taking my life in my hands 
okay? I am taking my life in my hands if I'm going to get involved with you. In other words, Mordecai, if I walk before the king without an invitation, he could kill me. Now there's a lesson here, and here's a lesson. We can always come boldly before our king, the real king. Don't you love that? We can always come boldly to our king, the real king. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that so encouraging that we can come boldly to our King, to the throne of grace, and ask Him for help in our time of need? I love that. Now, Mordecai is saying, Esther, it's time for you to put it all on the line. And he calls for courage. Verses 12 through 14a, if you're still with me, say amen. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, verse 13, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Now, verse 14, which verse 14 is the key verse of the book of Esther. Let's look at verse 14a. For if you remain silent at this time, you don't say anything at this time. Listen to what he says. Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Now, even though God's name is not mentioned in this book, right now, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. That tells me that God, God is implied. Amen? But you and your father's family will perish. So Mordecai is saying to Esther, you're, you're the queen. You're the queen. But underneath your queenly garments beats a Jewish heart. You are one of God's people. And don't think by remaining silent you can avoid persecution because you can't. And once the killing starts, it's going to be very hard to stop. Once the crowds start killing the Jews one by one, they'll wind up on your doorstep and kill you and your family. And Mordecai is telling Esther, don't think that your position or your privilege exempts you from what's going to happen. Just because you're the queen, he's telling her, just because you're the queen, you're not, listen now, you're not out of trouble. And if you don't do something, Esther, if you don't do something, Esther, if you don't help us, God is able to help us from some other source. God will, listen now, God will deliver us another way. But you yourself, Esther, could be destroyed. You might not survive. And you see, Mordecai affirms divine providence 
He affirms wonderful confidence in the revelation and the covenant of God with Israel to bless, sustain, and preserve them. And you see, knowing the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Mordecai had faith that the people would be protected from being completely annihilated. Someone say amen to that. Verse 14b. In fact, the last part of this verse is the very uh, is a very famous quotation, well-known quotation in this book. And Mordecai says this, And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, I kind of almost hear Mordecai say, Esther, what made the king pick you out? Do you think it was your good looks? Because they were all good-looking. Hey, cousin. Hey, queen. Listen now. You're the queen. You've got it all. You're on top, okay? You've got privileges beyond anyone else in the whole kingdom. Do you think that happened by chance? Do you think that's a coincidence? Do you think you got that just because of your good looks? Hey, cousin. Hey, queen. The reason you're on top is because God put you there. And do you know why God put you there? He put you there for such a time as this, to position you, position you for this very moment. All of that training and all you went through happened so that you would be the instrument God would use to deliver his people. Now, if you're saved, say amen. As believers, all of us come to that place in life for which God has been preparing us. I want you to write this down, Ephesians 2.10. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, For we are God's workmanship. Good place to say amen. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, got to get this, which God prepared beforehand, beforehand, that we should walk in them. And you see what Paul is saying there is that God has set out a plan for your life. That God has foreordained the work that he intends for you to do for the glory of his kingdom. In other words, he's already got it all worked out. He's already got it all planned out. But in the meantime, listen now, in the meantime, he's working in you to prepare you for that work that he's prepared that you should do. Isn't that awesome? Good place to say amen. Mordecai's request number two, number two, is Esther's response. Say that, Esther's Response, write that down. Mordecai's request, Esther's response. Look at verses 15 through 16a with me. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Verse 16a. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Did you get that? And fast for me. Circle that, underline that, highlight that. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast 
as you do. So her maids or attendants most likely would have been other Jewish girls who joined her in the fast. Now I want to point something out to you here. The text mentions fasting, but not prayer, right? It mentions fasting, but not prayer. Listen, there's not one mention of prayer in the book of Esther. But let me say this. But you can't have fasting without prayer. You can't have fasting without prayer. So so they fasted and they prayed. Now I want to give you a definition of biblical fasting. Okay, biblical fasting. And this is the definition. It is the discipline of abstaining from physical nourishment for spiritual purposes. I'm going to say it again. It's the discipline of abstaining from physical nourishment for spiritual purposes. Now listen, you got to get this. Fasting is not commanded in Scripture. Got it? Fasting is not commanded in Scripture. In fact, in our churches across America, there's a great diversity of thought concerning this, this topic on fasting. Something, something, it's important, something, it's not so important, but I think it's important. But John Wesley said this, Some have exalted religious fasting beyond all scripture and reason, and others have utterly disregarded it. So, since we're talking about fasting, I, I want to say a few things regarding fasting. So, I want you to follow me here, okay? Fasting, first of all, fasting is not intended to persuade God to change his mind. I'm going to say it again. Fasting is not intended to persuade God to change his mind. That's the wrong attitude. Listen, friends, you cannot manipulate God. Don't forget, he's God. Got it? He's, he's God. It's wrong to use fasting to motivate or to manipulate God to do what you want him to do. It doesn't work. It's not going to happen. Okay? So it's not intended to persuade God to change his mind. Also, it's not, fasting is not intended to impress God. It's not intended to impress God. You don't need to impress God, and you don't need to worry about being acceptable in his eyes. If you are his child, if you are, listen now, if you belong to him, he has already accepted you. Good place to say amen. So when you fast, listen now, it doesn't impress God. But I must say this. Fasting does bless him if it's done with the right attitude. Got it? It blesses him if it's done with the right attitude. Fasting is not intended to persuade God to change his mind. It's not intended to impress God. Here we go. Fasting is not intended to lose weight. It's not intended to lose weight. Now, you may lose weight, okay, when you fast, but that's not the objective. Biblical fasting was never, listen now, meant to be a diet plan. Got it? So let me tell you what fasting is intended for. So I want you to follow me here, okay? Fasting prepares us. Write that down. Fasting prepares us. It prepares us. Write that down. Fasting prepares us. Fasting, listen now, fasting, what it does, it puts us in the right frame of mind. It brings our attitude our attitude in line for God to conform us to his purpose and to conform us to his, his image. 
Fasting brings us into a place of solitude with God. He has our full attention. And what it does, it gives us peace of mind so we might have the mind of Christ. It allows us to hear God, listen now, without any distractions or outside influences or, or interference. It prepares our hearts and our minds and, and our souls to receive for what God has for us. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel fasted and prayed to God and the angel Gabriel appeared with instructions. In Nehemiah chapter 1, write that down, Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah fasted and prayed and God opened the doors for him to go rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. You see, fasting and praying prepared the hearts of these men to receive for what God had done, for what God, excuse me, had for them. So, Fasting prepares us. Also, fasting cleanses us. It cleanses us. Write that down. It cleanses us, okay? Now, now physically, physically, during fasting, the body is being cleansed, right? It's getting all the impurities, getting rid of all the impurities. And so it is with us spiritually. Our souls, like our bodies, need cleansing. Listen, we are spirit beings, so we need spiritual renewal, right? Now, I want you to follow me here. As we fast and as we pray before God, we recognize our sin. We, we see our impurities. And as we confess it to Him, He begins to do some spiritual house cleaning in our lives. He begins to get rid, listen now, rid of all the impurities that hinder and, 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 the, and blemish our lives, the impurities that hinder and blemish our lives so that we will stand clean before His presence. So fasting prepares us it cleanses us, and fasting equips us. It equips us. It equips us. It equips us for the battle we wage against Satan. Now, friends, you know when Satan gets a foothold in our lives, we try everything but fasting. And I'm guilty. I'm guilty of this. In fact, I want to say this, that as I, I was studying this, the, th this message has, has enlightened my heart and mind to the importance of fasting and, and praying. So I'm going to start fasting and praying. I've done it in the past, but I haven't done it for a while. But, but I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to fast and pray at least twice a month so that, that I'm prepared and so that it cleanses my heart and so that I'm equipped and, and I want to fast and pray so I, I, can, I, I can get wisdom from God to know when we are to reopen Cry Out Christian Fellowship. I want to make sure it's God's timing and not my timing. Okay, not the world's timing or whoever's timing, but it's God's timing. So I, I'm going to fast and pray. You see, Satan cannot succeed against equipped believers. So twice a month, if you want to join me, that's great. We as a church body would do the same thing. So let's go back to the text. Back to the text, verse 16b. When this is done, Esther's saying this, Esther's saying when this is done, what's done? When the fasting and praying is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now, Mordecai's great appeal to Esther was based on a great principle. And the great principle is this. The greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. The greater the privilege, 
the greater the responsibility. The more you have, listen now, the more you have, the more you have to answer for. The more God has given you, get this now, the more God has given you, the greater your responsibility to use it for His kingdom. So let's look at the text again. And if I perish, she says, I perish. And if I perish, I perish. What does that mean? I mean, what does that really mean? I believe it means, when Esther said that, I believe what she was saying, I believe what it means is trustful submission to the will of God. Trustful submission to the will of God. I, I believe Esther is saying, I will do God's will. I will do his will, whatever the cost. Can you say that? I will do God's will, whatever the cost. Lord, whatever your will is for me, Lord, I will do it, whatever the cost. And listen now, she presented herself, and I love this, as a living sacrifice to do God's will. I love that. Verse 17. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So what he did, he gathered the Jews together and proclaimed a three-day fast. Now, what I want to do right now is I want us to quickly focus on this guy, Hathak. Remember him? We mentioned him back in he was mentioned back in verse 5. Hathak, say Hathak. Because, you know, he, he, probably, he probably didn't even realize or even know what an important role he was playing in God's plan to save the Jews. And, and he probably felt insignificant, but God used him. And, and Hathak was instrumental in saving the Jews. And, and if you stop and think about it, friends, that's what God does. That's what he does. He often uses unknown, obscure people to accomplish important tasks, right? That's the way God works. Now, to prove my point, let me ask you some questions. What was the name of the young slave, Jewish slave girl, who helped Naaman go to the prophet to be healed of his leprosy? What was her name? It doesn't say her name. It just said that she was a girl. Let me ask you this. What was the boy's name who gave Andrew his lunch that fed the 5,000? doesn't say his name. It just says he was a boy. Let me ask you this. Who were the men that lowered Paul down the walls so that he would escape? And then Paul would write half of the New Testament. doesn't say their name. Let me ask you this. What was the name of the man who led Billy Graham to the Lord. Some of you might not know his name. His name was Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham, who descended from eight generations of Baptist preachers. Or how about, what was Charles Spurgeon's father's name? It was John. And we may not know these individuals, but God used them in important ways. And what an important link Hathak was between Mordecai and Esther. 
and not only to bring the information to them, but the tone, the passion, and the accuracy. So, so there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. One person can make a difference. Write that down. One person can make a difference. Do you believe that? Do you believe that one person can make a difference? I do. I believe one person can make a difference. Hey, the Word of God says Jesus left the 99 to find the what? The one. To find the one. One is always a valuable number to God. What does the Bible say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one, one and only begotten Son. Now, now if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. Listen, even if you feel insignificant or unknown, are you available to any task God might have for you where you might not even receive recognition or credit, but where you will make the difference? Huh? And hopefully the answer is yes. Doesn't matter about the credit or the recognition. If God wants to use me, I want to be used by God, and I want to make a difference. And I want to tell you, friends, listen, church, listen, church, cry out, Christian fellowship. We can either sit here and watch the world go by, or we can decide to get involved for such a time as this. You see, during this COVID-19 uh, pandemic, we have an opportunity as believers, as, as, as a church, to be the church, to be the church and make a difference to reach people for Jesus Christ. Right now, right now at this time, people are more open to the gospel than ever before. So my question is, are we going to pass the buck? Or are we going to get involved? Are we going to sit on the sidelines? Or are we going to get involved? And you see, it's really, really easy for us to just sit on the sidelines while the world burns around us and while people are dying and going to hell. And you see, the words of Mordecai apply just as much to us as they did to Esther. So I want you to follow me here. And this is my point. If we don't put everything we have into witnessing to the lost, if we don't put everything we have into being the church, we will be passed by. And God will raise up somebody else. So, so while we're here, while we're here, let's live, love, worship, and witness. While we're here, let's throw in, listen, let's throw everything in. Let's, let's be 100% committed. Let, let's, let's not hold anything back. Hey, if it's, if it's time, let's put the time in. If it's money, let's put the money in. If it's prayer, let's put the prayer in. If it's serving, let's put, listen now, let's put the serving in. If it's witnessing, let's put the witnessing in. Whatever it takes, while we have the opportunity, let's do the work of God. Let's not hold anything back. Let's not make excuses about the past, and let's not worry about the future. But right now, right now, for such a time as this, let's do what we can do. Let's get involved. 
And let's make a difference. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is it's such a blessing to be in your word and to be in your presence. And Father, what a, what a timely message for us to hear. You choose us to use us. And thank you for challenging us to seize the opportunity in such a time as this to do your work, to hold nothing back, to throw everything in. That we would, just like Esther, live our lives in trustful submission to your will. To do your will, whatever the cost. To present ourselves as living sacrifices. To do your will. We love you, Lord, and glorify you and honor you and thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, now before I let you go, if, if you've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your life, into your heart, to be your personal Lord and Savior, I want to give you that opportunity to do so right now. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way. Okay? Not, not some way, not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. And Jesus wants to save you and cleanse you of all of your sins. He wants to change your life. And so you have a decision to make today. It's your choice. He's giving you free will. You can either accept him or reject him. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6.2, that today is a day of salvation. So today you can make a choice to accept Him, to ask Him to come into your life to be your personal Lord and Savior. You see, Romans 10.9 says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. So if that's you, if you, believe, if you want him in your life, you want to trust him to come into your life to be your personal Lord and Savior, bow your heads, close your eyes, and repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner, and I need you to come into my life to change me, to save me, and to cleanse me of all of my sins. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and I believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, purchased by the blood of Jesus. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, we would love to hear from you. I hope you all are having a, having a wonderful morning, day, whatever. I love you, miss you, and see you next week. God bless.